last week we looked at chapter 11, which really spoke of David being king over all of Israel. Remember that David first became king over just the tribe of Judah first, and then it wasn't until afterwards that he became ruler and king over all of Israel, including Judah. And so after uh, Saul's death, uh, the men of Judah, they anointed David king, and he served in Hebron as their king for seven years. And then uh, later on, when he finally conquered the Jebusite city of Jebus, or what we know as Jerusalem, uh, David then ruled and reigned over that uh, and over all of Israel, the north, northern and southern two tribes, uh, for another 33 years. A total of 40 years uh, he reigned over Jerusalem, just as Saul did before him. And by the way, just as uh, Solomon, will, his son, will rule for 40 years after David's passing. And so we, we looked at David becoming king over Israel and then uh, speaking about the mighty men of David. And it's interesting in, in chapter 11, beginning in verse 10 through the rest of the chapter, uh, this content of, of that, speaking of David's mighty men, was really something that was given to us at the end of 2 Samuel. And um, at the very end of David's, or, or what would appear to be David's career or his life, these men were mentioned at the very end. But here in Chronicles, it's more put up front in, in, in the front of David's uh, career or ministry, if you will, as king and prophet. Did you know that he was a king and a prophet? We know that he's a king, but he was also a prophet. Jesus called him a prophet. He prophesied in the Psalms. He wasn't a Levite, though. He wasn't a, a priest. Who was the only one who has served both king, prophet, and priest? Anybody want to take a stab? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's right. He was the only one who fit all three of those offices perfectly and completely. But David, being such a wonderful man as he was, he fulfilled two of those things. He was a prophet. He was a king and a wonderful musician, made some very bad mistakes, as we know. But God forgave him. And if God forgave David, can he forgive you? Is there something that you've done tonight or this week that has, you know, you feel like God can't accept me? I've done this too many times. Maybe it's a, a habitual sin of some kind. Is there something in your life that's sort of like your Achilles heel? You know, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be um, anything, uh, you know, illicit or anything like that. It could be something simple. But is there something that you've just been tripping over year after year and, and you feel as if God is angry with you and that he's finished with you and that and the devil certainly plays into that and he will convince you that God has finished with you because you've done it too many times you've you've smoked that pot too much you've you you've uh you know hopefully no believer is is engaging those things even though in New York state it's Ill, or it's legal now <laughs> isn't that crazy and yet, when you lose control of your senses and your mind, that's the thing that God was always talking about. That was the prohibition throughout the Bible. And people did it through alcohol. Now you can do it through a multiple means. But it doesn't matter, whatever it is. So anyway, is there something? And if there is, know that you can confess those sins. And, and you can confess them, and God will forgive you as if they hadn't been committed. 
He will forgive you. Do you believe it, though? Believe in God's word because his promise is true. And then walk in newness of life. And to the extent that you can do that, let me suggest to you that that's the extent that you can comprehend grace. Because it's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. But David was such a character. And David had these mighty men. Men that he could stand with. Men that devoted their life to him. Men that would have given their life for him. You remember we read of the incident where they were in the stronghold at, at Ziklag, I believe it was. No, it was, I think it was at Ziklag. Or Adullam's cave, that's it. And his, David just in a longing sort of way said, Oh, I wish I had a drink from the well in Bethlehem. And three of his mighty men, David didn't ask them. He probably didn't even know they were gone. They just kind of heard it in the background and they took off. David was completely oblivious to it. And then they come back with a cruise full of water. And he's like, what's this? Well, you had mentioned that you, how'd you do that, guys? How'd you break through? Well, we snuck around, we got it, and we came back to give it to you, my king. And what loyal men, what a great thing when a man... Even a president has loyal men. Think of that. Any president of any country to have men around him, men and women that are loyal to him, loyal to the country in which they serve, but loyal to the man because they believe in the man, not because the man is perfect. They don't worship the man, but they they stand behind him because they believe what he stands for. And David had such men that would hazard their lives just to bless him. And I tell you, the Bible says, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And when you're willing to lay down your life for someone, you become more than a friend to them. And David had many of these men who were broke, they were confused, they were outcast socially. And these were the people that attracted to David, a bunch of miscreets, a bunch of what the world would call degenerates, deplorables, and these are the men. And God loves to use a ragtag group of guys to win great victories. He's always with the underdog. I like that because I'm one of those underdogs. And did you know the Christians in this world are underdogs? We're not many. The remnant of God has always been small. God has always won the biggest battles with just a few. It's never been the great mass of massive armies with all the uh, armaments and the tanks and the guns and the nukes and everything else. God has done great things just through a few. And he continues to work in that way. So don't be discouraged when you feel outnumbered and outgunned, so to speak, because you have one who is in you that is greater than he that is in the world. And the greatest enemy is the enemy of our soul, Satan. And there are many people being used by Satan, but they are not the enemy. The real enemy is the one behind the scenes, pulling the strings like a puppet. And such was I, and such were some of you. All of us, actually, at some point were puppets of Satan, thinking that we were okay, thinking that if we just did enough good things, God would have to let us into the kingdom. He doesn't have to let us in at all. And so, chapter 12 tonight looks at the growth of David's army 
And let's just go ahead and get into it. It says, Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war. Now, one thing you have to remember about Ziklag was uh, Ziklag is this little town in the southern part of Israel. Uh, Beersheba is even farther south than it, but Ziklag was actually given to David by a man by the name of Achish. He was the king of Gath. He was a Philistine king. And remember, when David was running from Saul, he ingratiated himself or was ingratiated by this king of Achish. And Achish is the king of, of, of of the people group whom David slew their champion, Goliath. And so David goes and joins forces with this enemy combatant. And Achish loves the guy because he's against Saul, he's against, you know, he's, he feigns to be against Israel when he's really just trying to survive and trying to find anybody who will, you know, it wasn't the best time in David's life. He wasn't himself. But, but Achish gave David this town in the, um, in the Shephelah, I guess you could call it, down in the southern part of, of Israel. And this is where uh, David had his hold meaning a place where he could hide with his men and their families. And so um, you can look at that, uh, this issue with uh, Achish uh, giving Ziklag to David in 1 Samuel 27. It talks about that arrangement that they had made. And notice that these men were armed with bows, using both the right and the left hand. And um, and remember, these were men... uh, um, There were mighty men among them who were from Saul, as we saw in verse 1. And these men were armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left hand and hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. And they were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. And something that's interesting about these Benjamites, and this is what really uh, fooled a lot of warriors, is when you go into battle, most men, they will take out a sword from their left side and they'll they'll fight right-handed and they will fight with the sword with their right hand. But the Benjamites, they trained themselves to do both. And so, um, and that changes everything because you don't know if the guy's a Benjamite or not, but when he's fighting with his one hand and then he he switches hands, everybody see the, uh, uh, what's that that movie, the... uh, the Princess Bride, you know, I got, I got a secret to tell you. What's that? I am not right-handed. And then he switches, you know, and he goes like this and totally, you know. But in, in real life, in a real battlefield, if you're not left-handed and you see your enemy do that, it's going to confuse you. And you're probably going to lose because you're not used to fighting with blows from that side. You're not used to guarding yourself in that way. And you're going to suffer some damage and probably die. These men were like that. In fact, they were notorious for this. In Judges chapter 20, verse 16, speaking of these sons of Benjamin, it says, Among all this people, there were 700 select men who were left-handed. Now, I would, I would be a Benjamite, I think, because I'm left-handed. I, I write left-handed. Um, I, I shoot a bow and arrow with my right hand. I shoot a gun right-handed. Hallelujah. And I bow with my left hand. And I throw a football with my right hand, so I don't know, I'm kind of confused. Um, but I feel very comfortable in some things other than others. But these guys, there are 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. So not only were they 
uh, skilled to do it, but they were accurate. These are the kind of guys you want on your team. If you remember, in Judges chapter 3, verse 15, Ehud, who was a judge from Benjamin, he killed, remember that fat man? His name was Eglon. The Bible calls him a fat man. I like that. See, if it was a woman, the Bible, I'm sure the Holy Spirit wouldn't use the word fat. It'd probably just say large or, um, I don't know, something. But it says that he was a fat man. And yes, I like to say the word fat because it's politically incorrect to use the word fat. And I'll say it fat, 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 fat. So <laughs> he was a fat man. It says, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and he kills the man with his left hand and totally throwing off the game. And, and that is a strategic thing, that when uh, those kinds of things change uh, the nature of battles. And so the chief, it says, was Ahiezer, Ah, I'm butchering his name, Ahiezer, then Joash, the sons of Shema'ah, the Gibeathite, Jeziel and Pelet, the sons of Asmaveth, Barakah, and Yehu, the Anathothite. And so it lists some more names there of these, of these Benjamites, but let's skip down to verse 8 now. And it says, now some Gadites, so these are men from Gad, uh, some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, meaning here in Ziklag, as you can see on the screen down there in the south. And they could handle shield and spear whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. So obviously these men were, men were very fierce. They were very agile, both of which are very important. Psychologically, to have a fierce countenance in battle is good because your enemy is already starting to fear when he looks at you. And then to be swift of foot is also a good thing because then you can outmaneuver your uh, your enemy, sort of like those uh, on the National Geographic, those little seals when the great whites are going after them and the seals are just kind of like doing circles around the sharks and making them dizzy. It's kind of like the same kind of thing. And, they, uh, and, and Ezra the first, and Obadiah the second, Eliab the third. And so it continues speaking of these men of the Gadites. Um, and let's go ahead and it, list, it lists some more there, but let's go ahead and skip down to verse 14. And it says, These were the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over a hundred, and the greatest was over a thousand. And, and that's always interesting, too, just the, uh, the organization of the army. In any army, there ought to be organization. Otherwise, if things get scattered, if there's chaos, nobody knows what's going on. But when there's order, uh, it's always a good thing. Order is always good. That's why even in our services, we should do all things decently and in order. I remember being in a, uh, when I first got saved down in Florida, I remember a friend of mine, the, the young man who led me to Christ, he took me to a, a United Methodist Church. And it was a very Pentecostal church, this church was. And it was there in Deland, Florida, near the university where I went. And I remember one time, and I'll never forget this, and I was just... New under, you know, new in Christ. I didn't know anything other than the fact that I'm forgiven, and that's about all I knew. <laughs> but I walked into the service, and the pastor was preaching, and a woman gets up and starts speaking in tongues, interrupting the pastor's message. And then another woman, and I was sitting in the back, another woman gets up, and she starts speaking in tongues as if they're having like dueling tongues. Da 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 da. 
you know, and they're, they're dueling back and forth. And then a third woman stands up and she starts. And finally, the pastor just says, stop. Sit down. <laughs> and, and it was rightfully so because it was just it was creating this scene. Uh, but everything should be done within order. And and we do all things in order. And we do that to please our king. We, he's not the author of confusion. The devils are the author of confusion. Those who are governed by the flesh are submitting to the author of death. They're submitting to the one who is the author of confusion. And so these uh, sons were from Gad, again, captains of the army. The least was over 100, and the greatest was over 1,000, a great organization. Verse 15, these are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it had overflowed all of its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. And, um, and, and that's interesting uh, because they, when, when they crossed over the Jordan to bring the children of Israel in, they crossed back over that Jordan and they had to fight enemies. And they did it when it was overflowing its banks at that time of year. So these are uh, pretty significant fellows. And verse 16, it says, Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold, meaning at Ziklag, And David went out to meet them, and he answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. And that's true, too. David knew that his, everywhere he walked, there were enemies. And whether you're a king of a, of a country, whether you're a, a, a CEO of a, of, a, of a company, or whether you're a pastor of a church, there are many enemies. And sometimes they're not always within the walls either. Many times they're outside the walls. But even within the church, um, even a pastor can have people who don't like him and doing anything they can to... Uh, to defame him. Verse 18, it says, Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, chief of the captains, and he said, and notice the declaration of this man. He says, We are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. And so David received them and made them captains of the troop, and that's always good to have somebody who was with you. And David had this wonderful um, thing about him where he, he was a good man. I mean, he had his faults, but when David was at his best, uh, he had a way of drawing people and drawing men because uh, David was a warrior and he was a, he, he was a good man. He wasn't a bloodthirsty man like Joab was, like his nephew. He wasn't bloodthirsty, but when he went out to battle, he took care of business. But when he wasn't on the battlefield, he wasn't looking to hurt people. In fact, he was looking to bless people. And he was very fair and kind, and he was always thinking about the Word of God. When people would come to him with their enemy's head and say, look who I've got, he says, who told you to kill him? Like the man who came and with Saul's, you know, uh, said that he thrust Saul through. He's like, when he was telling a lie... He says, what, and of course, David didn't know that at the time. He had the man killed. And yet Saul was the one who was chasing David, trying to kill him. And when somebody finally did kill Saul and, and, and feigned to be the one who did it, hoping to ingratiate themselves with David, David wouldn't have any of it. He wasn't a bloodthirsty man. He wouldn't even touch Saul. He had opportunities, but he didn't. 
It's interesting, too, that although this Amasai is chief of the captains, he's surprisingly not mentioned among David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23. In that passage in 2 Samuel 23, it lists the mighty men, but Amasai is not mentioned in there at all for some reason. So verse 19, it says, And some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. But they, and they is speaking of David and or the men of Manasseh, did not help them. For the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, He may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. And you can look at 1 Samuel 29, and it talks about this problem that um, Achish, this king uh, over the Philistines, when they were going to war, David wanted to join the war with them, coming against Israel. And naturally, the men of uh, the, the lords of the Philistines says, Hey, we don't want David to be with us because we're going to get in the heat of battle and he's going to turn on us and, and, and ingratiate himself to his master. And of course, David wasn't going to do that. And, and I'm glad that the Lord didn't allow David to. Uh, to continue in that before he was kicked out by Achish. Achish says, David, you've, you've been faithful to me. You've done everything that I've asked you to do. I've given you Ziklag, but these men don't trust you. And I think in Achish, in the back of his mind, he's like, I'm not so sure I trust you anymore either. Either these guys have got discernment or I'm just foolish. But finally, Achish had to acquiesced to the lords of the Philistines and they, they let David go and his men. They said, you guys got to get away from us. You can't fight this battle. You can't fight this battle against your own people. I'm not going to allow it. So verse 20, when he went to Ziglag, those of Manasseh who defected to him were Adnah, Josabad, Jediael, Mikael, Josabad, Elihu, and Zelophei, captains of the thousands who were from Manasseh. And they helped David, notice, against the bands of the raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were armies, or captains of the army. For at that time they came to David day by day to help him, until, he, until it was a great army, like the army of God. And I love that. I love that. Until it was like the army of God. You see, when God is with a man or a woman, who can stand against them? If you contend with them, you're fighting against God and you're going to lose. If God's anointing, His hand is on an individual and you, you're thinking to yourself that you're going to go against them, you're fighting against God then. And you're going to have a, a problem. And many people lose their lives. Many people who have defamed the Word of God and defamed God and said that He is nothing, all those people have died. And yet the Word of God remains. Didn't Jesus say, my word will never fail? Heavens and the earth will fail, but my word will remain forever. And that's true for anyone who comes against God's word. They will die, and the word of God will continue marching onward. And so if, you know, if you're one of those people, and I, I know that there's none of you here who have this heart, but if, uh, in the earshot of this message, if you're one of those people who's always you know, making fun of Christians and making fun of God and, and believing that He doesn't exist, that He doesn't care, and you keep sticking your finger in, in the eye of God, there's going to come a time. And hopefully you'll repent before you do that, because otherwise you will stand at His fierce wrath one day, and there'll be no hope for you. You will stand at the white throne judgment not having any 
anybody to stand up for you. There'll be no, uh, no attorney. You'll be sentenced to outer darkness, the flames of Gehenna forever, with a body, a resurrected body that can withstand the flames of hell. That's the truth. I like what it says in Romans. Paul says, what, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And God was for David. In fact, it was up to this point, God had in, in, in his mind all the time David. And it would be through David that the Messiah would come. And God was going to do a wonderful thing in David's life and use him in such a marvelous way. And God has the right to choose an individual. We don't always like that. It's not always fair. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Well, did God love Esau? I mean, I know what the Bible says. Jacob, God loved, and Esau he hated, but not in the sense that you think. Esau had opportunity to come to Christ. Esau had opportunities. But God loved Jacob a lot more. God loved Jacob. And Jacob continued on, and God chose him. Why did he choose some more than others? Why did he choose David and not somebody else? You know what? That's a mystery you can ask God when you see him face to face. And there's some mysteries that I'm okay with just saying, Lord, that's a mystery. I love there's a song that says, it's a mystery I will not chase. I'm not going to chase after that. There are mysteries like that. But when God is with a man or a woman, they are invincible, and that frustrates their enemies and remember that the battle of good versus evil rages on, but good always wins in the end. And that's all that matters, is that God wins. And guess what? You win if you, if you are in Christ. You win with God. But if you are not in Christ, you are not going to win. You're going to lose. And it's not just so much about being on the winning team. You've got to be on the team of the one who really loves you, who bore the, the punishment for your sin and for my sin. That's the one I want to stand behind. See, that's why, in a small, microscopic way, that is why people love David. That's why the men love David. Because he wouldn't just be one of these guys sitting back in, the, in Jerusalem telling all the men to go fight all of his battles. No, he was right out there in the front with them. And they're like, we love this guy. He's not like these other guys. He's not just sitting behind a desk in front of a Mac. <laughs> He's out there with his, with his 357 Magnum. He's out there with his AK-47. Yes, and I'll trigger some person. He's out there with his AR-15. He's not sitting back at home. But let me ask you, are you in Christ? Do you know that good always wins? They were against David, but futile attempt to do that. I love what it says in Revelation. Let me read this to you just to remind your sweet hearts, and I mean that literally, to remind your sweet and wonderful hearts of something that you need to hear. And I'm just going to read it to you. Revelation 19, verse 11. When Jesus comes back in his second coming physically to the earth. This is long after the, the church has been raptured, long you know, after the tribulation. It says, Now, John said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. 
And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. For every man in, who, who could hear this, and maybe women too, but for every man, you're, you're thinking, I don't know about you, but I'm like, yes, that's my king. <laughs> He's not just some kind of you know, wimp hiding behind a desk. No, we're talking about the king of kings, the lord of lords. And, 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 and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that's us and the angels, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we need to remember that, folks, because that is who our king is. He is always victorious. He's coming back victorious and he's allowing evil to commence now, much to our chagrin. He's allowing Satan to have his day, but his day is coming to an end very soon to a theater near you. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. And it's okay to be excited about that. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That's true. He doesn't. But when he comes back, do you know that even the angels during the tribulation, they're going to say, Lord, holy and true are your judgments, for they are worthy of them. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's basically what the angel said. And the Lord didn't rebuke him because the Lord knows that that's the purpose of the great tribulation, to bring punishment upon a world that has rejected Christ. And it will be very fitting at that point to say, God, you strike them because they are worthy to be killed. Because they have resented you, they've shaken their fist at you when you've extended so much grace and mercy. There's nothing left at the end of God's offer of salvation and all that he has done for you. And then finally for you to shake your fist and say, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm happy, I'm going to do it myself. Well, why would you want to be with him then? If you hate him so much, a lot of angry people still want to go to heaven, but they don't want to be like him. So what's the point? Why do you want to go to heaven and be with somebody who's perfect when you're not and you're happy and you're disgruntled nastiness? <laughs> right? But keep your eyes on the Lord and not all the setbacks and the discouragements, and I certainly need to remember that. And we also need to remember that it's the kingdom of God that's most important. Most important. Notice I didn't say that patriotism for our country is bad. It's not. It's okay. It's good. It's good to be a patriot. I'm a patriot. But it's second in importance to the kingdom of God. Right? Raise your hand if you concur. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you're a Christian, you ought to raise your hand. It's about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Than anything else. Be a patriot. It's okay. I love my country too. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to go to somebody's door and I'm going to talk to them about an election or I'm going to talk to them about Jesus, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus every single time. We'll talk about that other stuff some other time. Most important. So now in verse 23, uh, it talks about David's army at Hebron. And, um, and this is just a list of, of the names of the different um, 
uh, tribes and and the men that were part of David's army at Hebron, it lists them. It says, Now these are the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him, according to the word of the Lord. Of the sons of Judah, bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. Of the sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor, fit for war, 7,100. Of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Jehoiada, the leader of the Aaronites, and with him 3,700. Zadok, a young man, a valiant warrior, and from his father's house, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. The sons of Ephraim, 20,800, mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were designated by name to come and make David king. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times. Notice these men. What, these are incredible fellows. They, they understood the times to know what Israel ought to do and how we need men like that today in our country to know what we ought to do. And I can tell you the first thing we need to do is worship Jesus. <laughs> worship Him, get to know Him, and pray like you've never prayed before. And then do the other things. They were chiefs. There were 200 of them, and all their brethren were at their command. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went to battle expert in war with all the weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Notice, they weren't just a bunch of ragtag you know, group of men who didn't know anything. No, these guys were strict military men, and they kept order. They didn't break rank. And of Naphtali, 1,000 captains, with them 37,000 with spear and shield. Of the Danites, who could keep battle formation, 28,600. Of Asher, those who could go out to war and to keep battle formation, 40,000. Of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, from the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed men for battle with every kind of weapon of war. All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart. A loyal heart. Boy, I tell you what, when God is moving, it's really amazing. Because when God is working, He's working everything out. And these, these were loyal men. They were loyal to God. They were loyal to David. They would do anything. And that's a really wonderful thing. Be loyal to God. Be loyal to him. Be loyal to one another, your, your friends, your best friends. Don't abandon them when they make mistakes. Even when they betray you, don't abandon them. Seek and talk about it. Get it right. Don't do what the world does. The world just throws you away. No, talk about it. Get it right. They came with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. Notice that, of one mind to make David king. And it really is a mystery to me because after all that had happened that we read about in 2 Samuel, when you look at all the things that happened to David and the men that were loyal to him and how they, the many mistakes that they had made, bringing further injury upon David's reputation. It's a miracle. People like Joab killing Abner and other events. It's a miracle that all of Israel came together like this when there was so much, there were so many things that could have divided them and yet these men came together. It's almost like they just put it all aside. And the devil 
was working hard to create discord between the 12 tribes, even to thwart David's reign if he could. And this is how you know when the Lord is at work, when everything in the natural seems at odds with it. Because the devil knows the battle. And when there is something significant, he, he knows and he comes against it. In verse 39 it says, And they were with, there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, and these are all the tribes that are in the northern part of Israel, they were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. And I love that. There's joy. After all the turmoil the country had been through, after Saul's reign, which was a mess, a very disobedient man leading a bunch of disobedient people, now finally God has his man in power. And now there's joy. Because David among many things, he was an honest man. He was good to the people. He was a great warrior, a great leader. David was a shepherd. Remember, he was a shepherd before he was a warrior or anything else. He was a worshiper of God. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, as the Bible has told him. And he was dependent on God. Saul never inquired of the Lord, but David many times would inquire of God, even when he knew what to do in the battle. <laughs> I remember, I think it was in 1 Samuel chapter 5 or 6, he says, Lord, should I go up? I think, or it might be, I might have that confused. But anyway, he just says, should I go up? You know, we defeated the Philistines the first time. God, you know, David inquired of God. God says, yes, go down. I'll deliver them into your hand. And the very next day, they're coming out again in the same place. And David inquires of the Lord again. He didn't just presume that, oh, we'll just go down like other times. No, he inquired of the Lord and said, ah. And the Lord said to him, now I want you to do something different, David. I want you to go around them and set an ambush. And when you hear the, the wind going through the mulberry trees above, then you go. And David was obedient and David won the battle. Being obedient always wins the battle. Even when it causes you harm physically, or maybe emotionally, or maybe your reputation is tarnished because you're obedient to God when everyone else doesn't want to be, let them say what they will. Let people say what they will about you being obedient to God. Forget about what people think. Only care about what one thinks. Only care about what God thinks. His opinion of you is all that matters. In the end, folks, he's the only one we're going to stand in front of. We're not going to stand before our boss from our Fortune 500 company. We're not going to stand before our mother and our father. We're not going to stand before our aunt or our uncle. We're going to stand before Almighty God who paid the price for you and I. He's the only one. And David was a man of prayer. I love it in Proverbs. It says, when a righteous are in authority, Proverbs 29 verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And isn't that what's happening now? David is a righteous man. He is in authority. The people are now rejoicing. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan, sort of like how we're groaning today. <laughs> Sorry if that hurt your feelings. Proverbs 28, verse 12. When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. And I love this one. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God 
is Jehovah, is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In God we trust. It's written on our currency. May it be true again. There are many who do still trust in God. But think of how much greater, you know, the people are rejoicing. There's great joy, right? But think of how much greater the celebration will be when, our, when the greater than David, Jesus Christ, comes to rule on the earth during the millennium. That's going to be amazing, folks. There's not going to be a Congress that's going to have to do things. Actually, now they just kind of do whatever they want without going through Congress. But, but God, Jesus, is going to be on the throne. And he, what he says is going to go. And he is righteous. He is holy. And everything he says is truth and justice. He knows what he's doing. And everything he says is right and just. There won't be talking heads talking about what did he mean. No, he'll tell you exactly what he means. He will rule in righteousness, our King Jesus Christ. Don't you love him? Say amen if you love him. (laughs) Yes, we do. We love him. I love him. He's done so much for me. I can't even itemize. And everything that I gave up or I thought I lost when I, before I was saved, he has replaced many times over. I'm not kidding. I look back on the things that I thought I gave up, the things that I, you know, whatever, and, and the Lord says, Lord, Rob, I'll never be indebted to you. Whatever you have given up for me, I'm going to bless you in, in abundance. And can I tell you, at this point in my life, at 53 years of age, I can tell you that right now that has occurred. If he did not a single thing for me ever again, other than just giving me the promise of salvation when I finally die or when he comes in the rapture, he, don't, he, doesn't have, he, he never had to do anything, but he did. But he, doesn't, he never has to do another thing. But I'm grateful Are you grateful tonight for your king who loves you, died for you, and he's working things right now that you can't even see, you can't even understand. I can't even understand. He's doing things behind the scenes. We not even like them some of the times, but at the end of it all, we're like, how did you do that? How did you work that out? I could have never have done that. And God's like, wait till I get going. That's nothing. And see, that's your king. That's how much he loves you and me. And that's worth celebrating. Don't ever lose that. The world has a way of weighing you down and like lead on the shoes of a man who's jumped overboard into, into the Marianas Trench. You know, the, the weight of this world has a way of just dragging us down to the crushing depths and po- totally diminishing and squelching out the the hope and the light and the glory. Don't let them do it. Don't ever let anybody do that. That's why it's good to be refreshed in the Lord every single day. We're going to go on now and talk about uh, uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13 is all about the ark uh, coming finally into Jerusalem. And I'm going to read this through with a few comments, and then I want to take a tour with you um, this was something I really desired to do, and um, I hope it's all correct. <laughs> um, I believe it is at this moment. 
But just going through, after we read this chapter, it's pretty short. I want to take you on a tour of the Ark of the Covenant and a short tour of the tabernacle. And, and, and at the very least, the Ark of the Covenant. Because that's really what this chapter is all about, is bringing that piece of furniture that symbolized God's presence with his people, that symbolized God's authority over his people, finally bringing that piece of furniture that was originally part of the tabernacle, that got separated from the tabernacle for quite a long time, actually. Finally getting that into Jerusalem, and it was with David who did it. David knew, we've got to get this into Jerusalem. That's the center of our nation. The center of God is the center. It's not just the box. And, and Israel got into trouble. Remember, they treated the Ark of the Covenant like some magic foot, like a rabbit's foot or some kind of talisman that they could you know, take into war and it would automatically win the war. And it doesn't work like that because the God of the box is what's most important because of what's contained within that, that Ark was the, 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 the Ten Commandments, the two tables of stone. And God, God is like, you can take that into battle all you want, but if you don't believe in me, that's not going to do you any good. And that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to see that tonight briefly. But let's look at verse 1. Uh, so, so then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. David finally coming into his kingdom, wanting to do the right thing. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and, and underline this, this is a, a phrase that we use even today quite a bit, and if it is of the Lord, our God, if it seems good to you, men, and if it is of the Lord, our God, then let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. And I love that phrase, if it is of the Lord. In other words, this phrase means if it's the will of God, right? We, we often say that now. Well, if it's the Lord, I'll be there tomorrow. What we're saying is if it's God's will, I'll be there tomorrow. And here's where we get that phrase, right here. And he says, and let us bring the ark of God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. So we're talking at quite, quite, a, quite a long time. And then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And so David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. Now, so basically what he's saying is he's calling all the men from the south and all the men to the north, because Hamath is in the north. This other place, Shihor in Egypt, is much further to the south probably even of Beersheba. I haven't located that on a map, but that's basically what it's saying, everyone from the north and the south. And verse 6, And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. Remember, God says that he would meet the children of Israel. On one day a year, he would meet them uh, at the mercy seat. As you look at that uh, ark behind me on the screen, it shows a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, and those uh, angels' wings are, are going over the mercy seat, that golden seat that's right there, and they would drop, uh, the, the high priest once a year would take blood and atone for the children of Israel, for all of them, once a year. And God says, there, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you between the cherubim 
It's there I'm going to meet you because I'm going to atone for your sin with the shedding of an innocent animal in your place, foreshadowing the blood of Christ on the cross. And Jesus is that mercy seat. Symbolically, So, they, verse 7, they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And again, we've looked at this in Samuel. And Uzzah and Ohio drove the cart. And let me ask you a question. Was the ark supposed to be transported by a cart? No, it's supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. That's why you see the poles. And the poles, unfortunately, in this one, is, are not overlaid with gold. That's one thing I don't like about that picture. But uh, they were supposed to be overlaid with gold. And they would take those, four men, one on each side, uh, or two men on each side, would lift that thing, and they would carry it. And, and, and it wouldn't be on some kind of fancy new cart. It would be borne by men on foot, the way God had intended. It tells us in Exodus 25, Beginning in verse 10, it says this, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on the one side, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. That was the instruction that God and the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, because that's the only way it should be carried. And so now they, they get fancy and they, they put it on a new cart. And why did they put it on a cart? Because they saw the Philistines doing it. The Philistines didn't know the word of God, but they did. And God held the Israelites accountable. So David, they have the ark on the new cart and they're bringing it into Jerusalem. David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, was singing on harps, stringed instruments, on tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. And when they came to Nashon, or Chidon's threshing floor, Ezra, or Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died before God. They weren't supposed to touch it. They weren't supposed to touch it. You know, there's a proverb in uh, Proverbs 14, verse 12. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of, thereof, the end of its way is the way of death. And here is certainly one of them. It would have been better for Uzzah if the oxen did stumble, let God take care of it. And don't do what God had told you not to do. You weren't supposed to be carrying it on the cart anyway. And do you, do you notice that the Philistines got away with it because they were ignorant, they didn't know, but God allowed them to even carry this thing on a cart. Do you see the grace of God in that? Had the oxen not have stumbled and had he not put his hand on the ark, they probably would have been able to get to Jerusalem. And that would have been it. But it was almost like that you've crossed the line now. You weren't supposed to do it. Now you're going to touch it? I can't go that far. Do you see God's grace? He's a very gracious God. He's just not a God of rules and regulations. People say that all the time, but the reason they say that is because they don't know God. 
The more you read the Bible, the more you understand the character of God, you realize the love and the grace of God. Yes, he is very, he's very loving and gracious, but he's also, and that's the, that's the thing that people who hate God only want to see is this wrathful God. They only like to talk about when God pours out his wrath, but they dismiss most of the Bible by, by not seeing the love and the grace and the compassion of God. I was like that too until I started knowing the character of God. And then I saw God's grace all throughout the Old Testament. And I'm like, man, I have no excuse anymore to say that he's not a God of grace. He's been gracious all the time. Hasn't he? I don't know, has he? There is. He is. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And therefore, the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. You know, sometimes we think that, um, you know, we may be doing, sometimes we think we can be doing what we think is good and the Lord is not in it at all. Has that ever happened to you? You may try to shove the dove and you don't realize that we as children of God are working against the Lord because he's not called us to it, it's not his will, and yet we strive so hard to make it happen. And so David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? And there's an old adage that says, The ends do not justify the means. And that's exactly what happened here. It was good that David wanted the ark in Jerusalem, but the method in which he did it was wrong. And God is not just concerned, as we know, about the end result, but especially how we got to the end result. Therefore, the ends never justify the means. God's as much as concerned. I think God is even more concerned about the means than just the, the result at the end. He wants both of them to be to glorify him. So David would not move the ark with him into the city of God, but took it aside into the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed Edom in his house three months. Notice. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed Edom and all that he had. Now, this is the first attempt that David had made to bring the ark into Jerusalem. We're going to see the final attempt that David made because they learned something from this first attempt of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And we're going to see that next week when we look at uh, chapter 15. We'll look at 14 and 15, but 15 will, will show us the final um, uh, result of that. But I want to just take a few moments here and uh, show you, uh, just kind of trace very quickly with the time we have left, the Ark of the Covenant and, and where it went in all, from the beginning, when it was created, when it was constructed, until after the Babylonian captivity. And we don't really know anymore after that, biblically, where the Ark is. But I just wanted to take a quick tracing of the Ark of the Covenant with you tonight. And this won't take but a few minutes. But remember that the Ark first started, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was made in the wilderness. Remember when they were out in the wilderness under Moses during the Exodus. And Exodus 25, verse 10 through 22, uh, gives us the details of, of that. Um, because remember, God would give them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and then have them inscribed on stone in Exodus 24. And so now you've got to have something to put these tablets in. And so God creates this, he, he gives them the, uh, the instruction to put together this ark and to store them in there. And Exodus 25, verse uh, 10 through 20, gives us 
the instructions for that. So we see the ark being created out in the desert during that 40-year wandering. And then fast-forwarding several years now, they finally cross over into the promised land. And the first time we hear of it is in Joshua chapter 18 when they, um, at Shiloh. It says this is the first time we hear of the tabernacle in Joshua. And it's 18 verse 1. It says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. And you'll notice on the screen here, I just got a map, and Shiloh is up here. And you're going to see the movement of the ark um, going from Shiloh to Ebenezer to finally Aphek, and then down to Ashdod, to Gath, to Ekron, to Beth Shemesh, and then finally to Kiriath-Jerim, and then finally brought into a tabernacle in Jerusalem that David had erected before his son Solomon created the temple in which that was finally the, the resting place for it. And so we, we see it in Shiloh, in Joshua chapter 18. And then the next time we see it is at the battle of Aphek. Aphek, this battle occurred in 1104 B.C. This is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 4. If you read that, it's when the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines and became separated from the rest of the furnishings of Moses' tabernacle until it was brought into Jerusalem about 100 years later. Yes, I said 100 years. The Bible says 20 years, but it's more like close to 100 years, actually. And... Um, and so let's just read 1 Samuel chapter 4, just the first 11 verses really quickly because it, it kind of gives the background of what was happening here. Remember, the, the Israelites are thinking to themselves at this time, they were still kind of caught up in idolatry, and they thought to themselves, if we just take the ark from Shiloh, they were getting beat up in this battle of Ebenezer and Aphek in that area. And so they decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them and thinking that, you know, like a lucky charm that they would win the battle. Well, they got beat by the Philistines and the Philistines stole the Ark from them. <laughs> and so it says, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11, And the word of God came to all Israel, and now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped besides Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek, and then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they had joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, and when it comes among us, it, notice, it may save us from our enemies. That's a problem. <laughs> that it's going to save us. That's the problem. Not God, but it, the box. And that's where God had to draw a line and teach them a lesson. And it was a painful lesson. They lost many lives. I'm not going to finish reading the rest of that, uh, those 11 verses because I want to go on now. So they had this battle at Aphek, and it's recorded in um, uh, 1 Samuel 4. And that was around 1104 B.C., and so now the, the Philistines have the ark, and it's in their hands for seven months. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that it was for seven months that they, the Philistines had it. And the Philistines, when they had it, they sent it to Ashdod, their capital. And then it's recorded in 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, that they broke out with tumors and, and hemorrhoids. 
and it was getting really bad. So they did like what any decent person does. If it's, if it's doing this to us, let's send it to the other guys down the street. So they send it down to one of the other Philistine cities in Gath, and that's recorded in 1 Samuel 5, verse 8. Same thing happens. The men of Gath are breaking out in all these tumors and hemorrhoids, really bad stuff. And then they send that, send the, the ark to Ekron in 1 Samuel 5, verse 10. Same thing happens. And they're like, we've had it. We're going to send it to Beth Shemesh. Or they, they put it on some, on some oxen. The oxen go to this place, Beth Shemesh. And the men of that town briefly look inside the ark because they're inquisitive like us. Hey, what's in the box? And God kills them. And they're like, we've got to get rid of this box. <laughs> and, so, and, and that's recorded in 1 Samuel 6, verse 9. And then finally, Kirjath Jearim, they send it from there into the house of Abinadab, where it remained for, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 7, verses 1 and 2, that it was there for 20 years, but actually it was over 100 years. And there's some speculation on why 20 years is there, and I've heard some different reasons, and I don't have time to go into it. I'm already past my time here. But suffice it to say, um, this battle, just think of this logically, uh, the battle was in 1104 in Aphek, and then finally, when David brought it, the ark into Jerusalem and to put it into a tabernacle in Zion, not on the Temple Mount, because that was just a bare piece of ground at that time, David brought the ark of the covenant into a tabernacle that he had built, and, that's, um, and that was in 1003. So you do the math, 1104 minus 1003, you're looking at close to 100 years, about 100 years or more, give or take a year or two. And that's how long it was in Kirjath Jearim. And again, check out 2 Samuel chapter 6, the first 11 verses in 1 Chronicles 13. Actually, 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13 that we're reading tonight is the first attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem by David. And then when David is not successful. He takes it into, as we read tonight, he takes it into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and that's recorded for us in this chapter that we've already looked at. We've read it also in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11 as well. And so, and then finally, David, his second attempt, his final attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem, after they realize that we can't bring it in on a cart and he tells the Levites, you, you didn't do it the first time, but this time we have to do it right, guys. The Bible, the Word of God tells us. And finally they do that. And we're going to get to that in 1 Chronicles 15. It's successful. They, put a, they get the Levites and they put it on their arms and they bear it on their shoulders. They bring it into, into Jerusalem and Zion, the city of David, uh, in a tent that David had pitched for it because the tabernacle of Moses at this time was probably in Nob or uh, more likely in Gabeah. But it was, had other instruments in there, but the one thing that was missing was the Ark of the Covenant. And so David's like, I'm not just going to bring it back to me. I'm going to pitch a tent like the one Moses made, and I'm going to stick it in, in this tent until we build a house for God, <laughs> until we build a temple. And then finally, Solomon's temple is built in 1 Kings chapter 8. And Solomon, he brought the Ark of the Covenant up from Zion. Now think about this. Just look, if you were to think of a map, here's Mount Zion, or, or here's uh, Zion. This is David's palace, and here's the Temple Mount that you and I know today. 
Solomon finally builds a temple. And now the Ark of the Covenant is in a tabernacle that David made in Zion. So finally, when this is built, Solomon takes him and a bunch of men, they go down to Zion, and they bring that Ark up into the, the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where it stayed permanently until it was ravaged by the Babylonians in 606, 607 B.C., and we don't know what happened to the, the ark after that. After the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 607, 606 B.C., the ark's location is not mentioned again until later. In fact, the first century church, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, for a tabernacle was prepared. This is in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 2. A tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, and he's describing the, the, uh, the temple or the, the, the holy place, the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the gold pot and that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadow overshadowing the mercy seat. He says, of these things we cannot speak in detail, meaning they weren't there. First century church didn't know where the Ark of the Covenant was. After the Babylonian captivity, they don't know what happened to the Ark. Some people believe, and I, I think this is interesting. Now, I'm going to share something with you really quick, and we're almost done, and I apologize for going over. I typically do that. Uh, <laughs> but um, some be people believe uh, at the underneath the Temple Mount, there is a place we call the Rabbi's Tunnel, and we visit it when we go to Israel. And if you go next year, you'll you'll see this place. Some believe that, and again, this is just conjecture. Some believe that the Ark of the Covenant was actually hidden when they knew Babylon. The Babylonians were coming. The priest, knowing that subterranean caverns and all that stuff underneath there, that they hid it somewhere deep in the recesses and blocked it all up, and nobody knows about it. And could that be? It could be. Is the ark in heaven? Now, there's some conjecture here, too, but let me just read one final verse, and then we'll close it up for tonight. In Revelation 11, verse 19, during the sound of the seventh trumpet, so we've had the seal judgments, we've had the, the, the trumpet judgments, the very last trumpet sounds, and then it says in verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened, in notice, in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Is it possible that the Lord just took it? It's possible. Now, some people think, well, the things of the temple were the, the images of the things that were in the heavenly. So is it possible that some of those things are... are um, that the ark really is on the earth buried somewhere? It could be. We haven't found it yet. But when it does, it's going to create World War III if it does. But the Bible doesn't mention anything about it. Could be in the basement of the Vatican. <laughs> we don't know. But other articles survived. The menorah, the lampstand, and the holy place. Titus brought that back when he sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's right on the Ark of Triumph. And in, uh, as you go into uh, in Italy, in Rome, you see the, the inscription of them holding up uh, a thing with the, the lampstand, the menorah, from the temple, taking it into Rome. 
Now, I personally believe that that is actually in the Vatican, in the basement somewhere. But um, who knows? But it doesn't really matter. Because it says that the temple of God was open and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Maybe it's in heaven. Maybe the Lord just says, you know what, I'm going to take it. It's going to create a lot of strife and a lot of trouble. I'm just going to bring it up to me where it's safe. But anyway, I just thought I'd take you on a quick tour of the Ark of the Covenant. So we basically, in the context of chapter 13, we looked at when it was built in the desert to the moment where it could be in heaven or it could be buried underneath the Temple Mount, which would be really exciting. Um, I've always been one of those little boys. You know, I used to watch Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Would have loved to have been the guy that found the ark. Can you imagine that? Except for that German guy who peeped inside and his face melted. That was kind of cool. But, uh, but just to think of um, God's faithfulness. Hey, let's stand and pray together. Next week we'll look at um, David being established in Jerusalem which is kind of like a parenthetical chapter because uh, this chapter here should really be, goes back in time, but chapter 15 really should be close to 13, but for some reason the chronicler put chapter 14 in there, and we'll talk more about that later. So, Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, uh, just for these things. And what a joy it is to study your word and to look into these things and to see the worship. And Lord, how it inspires our hearts and it challenges us too, Lord. And so, uh, Lord, have your way with us tonight and keep us in safekeeping, Lord. And, and just keep us, uh, make us obedient, Lord, to your word. And, and again, help us to love one another in this world that is just going chaos, going chaotic and we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.